The old pilot's plain tales. Whether the weather. Whether the weather be cold or whether the weather be hot, we'll weather the weather, whatever the weather, whether we like it or not. Red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky in the morning, sailor's warning. Clear moon, a frost soon. Mackerel skies and mares' tails make tall ships carry low sails. Ring around the moon means rain real soon. Whether you use old wives' tales, seaweed, or rocks to forecast your weather, if you're a pilot, you'll probably want something a little more scientific, although many weather rhymes are in fact based on fact. Nowadays, however, we are blessed with more ways to get the weather than one can shake proverbial sticks at. And certainly in the world of aviation, it's all pretty accurate, even if it's presented in a fairly archaic code. Of course, even that is pretty advanced when compared with the early days. Having said that, Wilbur and Orville Wright made good use of weather records available to them from the government weather observers to choose Kitty Hawk as the location for their experimentation with gliders and eventually their successful first flights. Before we get to that though, let's look a little further back into the history of weather forecasting. The Upanishads of India, late Vedic Sanskrit texts around 5,000 years old, make mention of the process of cloud formation and seasonal rain cycles caused by the movement of the earth around the sun. Thales may qualify as the first ancient Greek metrologist as he reputedly issued a seasonal crop forecast and Democritus, who lived around 400 BC, predicted changes in the weather and he used his ability to convince people that he could predict other future events. Although Hippocrates' work included discussions on the weather and his treatise, Air, Waters and Places, it was Aristotle actually called one of his works Metrology. He had rather fanciful notions of the four elements, fire, air, water and earth, having interactions that explained a great many natural phenomena. His observations of the weather, though, were more accurate than many. For example, he tells us that when there is a great quantity of exhalation and it is rare and is squeezed out of the cloud itself, we get a thunderbolt. He certainly strikes a chord when he explains what we now know as the hydrological circle, the continuous cycle of water from the surface into the air through evaporation and its return via precipitation. Now the sun, moving as it does, sets up processes of change and becoming and decay, and by its agency the finest and sweetest water is every day carried up and is dissolved into vapour and rises to the upper region, where it is condensed again by the cold and so returns to earth. In China, the philosopher Wang Chong dispelled the myth of rain coming from the heavens, concluding that rain is evaporated from water on the earth 
into the air and forms clouds, stating that clouds condense into rain, although he quotes this idea as coming from earlier theories proposed centuries before. Even Jesus has something on the subject of weather, saying in the New Testament, When evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. In the Middle Ages, there were scientific discoveries that explained some of the principles that cause our weather, although many scholars believed it was still linked to astrology and the position of the stars. In the 17th century, the tools of modern weather forecasting were starting to appear, with Galileo Galilei's construction of a thermoscope, a glass tube containing globes of different density that will rise or fall depending on the change in air density with temperature. In 1643, Evangelista Torricelli invents the mercury barometer, and a few years later, Pascal calculated the weight of air and proved that above the atmosphere there lay not some invisible matter, then known as plenum, but a vacuum. The 18th century sees Bernoulli publish the basic laws of gases. Hadley explaining global atmospheric circulation, and Fahrenheit inventing the mercury thermometer. But in the 19th century, the advances come thick and fast. Luke Howard, the subject of an earlier tale, assigns cloud names that we still use today. Francis Beaufort classifies wind speeds, and it's Gaspard Gustave Coriolis who recognises the basis for the turning force we now know as the Coriolis effect. All the scientific principles were coming together, and there was a growing interest in predicting weather, driven in the main by the needs of shipping. But it was a storm in 1859, and the loss of the steam clipper Royal Charter that galvanised action to create the very first formal forecasting system. The Royal Charter was considered a modern and powerful vessel, driven by sail and steam, and was returning from Australia to Liverpool in England. As the ship reached the island of Anglesey, a mere 75 miles from their destination, the captain decided to continue past the safety of Holyhead Harbour and continue on. The glass was falling as the air pressure decreased, and the wind eventually reached Storm Force 12, driving the ship onto the rocky coast of Anglesey. With many passengers returning from the Australian gold rush, bullion in the hold was insured for £322,000, over £40 million in today's money and there was much more held by the many successful prospectors on board. Apart from the enormous loss of wealth, there was a tragic loss of life, with only 40 being saved from the complement of nearly 500 passengers and crew. In the face of this calamity, a new department within the British Board of Trade was formed with Vice Admiral Robert Fitzroy at its head the forerunner of the Met Office. Fitzroy established a chain of observation stations around the country linked by the newfangled telegraph system, 
passing daily weather reports back to him. Independently, the same concept was starting in the United States, with reports being sent to the Smithsonian Institute, but the U.S. Weather Bureau wouldn't be formed for a decade. Ship's captains were tasked with the collection of data on the weather from instruments loaned to them for the purpose, and they passed it on. With this data, Fitzroy began to develop weather charts that would allow him to make predictions, which he called forecasting the weather, the first time the term was coined. Before long, the daily forecasts were being published in the Times newspapers, giving the public their first taste of what the weather might be for the day. The very first stated, the temperature in London was to be 62 degrees, clear with a southwesterly wind. Although it would be a few years into the future, in 1911 the Met Office began issuing marine weather forecasts, which included gale and storm warnings via radio transmission for areas around Great Britain. Occasionally seven later, except in South Fitzroy. Showers, thundery in east, good occasionally poor in east. Lundy, Fastnet, North or northwest for the service has now been running for over 153 years and includes 31 sea areas around the British Isles with quaint names well known to the British such as Dogger, Fisher, German Bite, Trafalgar and Fitzroy named after the man who began it all. As the emphasis moved from the sea into the air, the advances in air travel were exceeding the capability of forecasting to predict, and it wasn't until 1918 that the US Weather Bureau began issuing bulletins and forecasts for domestic military flights and the new airmail routes. Recognising the important connection between weather forecasting and aviation, on May 20, 1926, Congress passed the Air Commerce Act. This act included legislation directing the Weather Bureau to furnish weather reports, forecasts and warnings to promote the safety and efficiency of air navigation in the United States. Back then, most of the effort was to find out what was happening, not what would be happening. Weather observations were mainly taken from the ground, and there was no real way to gather accurate information from the sky above other than tracking a balloon or listening to reports from pilots after they landed. Over the years, technology would evolve, and weather would be collected from regular med aircraft flights and improvement from earlier kite observations, in addition to radio sondes, battery-powered instruments attached to a balloon that transmitted readings back to the ground via radio. In Britain, the efforts put into weather forecasting was intense, as it was considered a vital part of the war effort in the 40s. The Met Office had already become part of the War Office following the First World War, and it then came under the umbrella of the Air Ministry, with Met offices located at all RAF airfields. Probably the most important job of forecasting during the war was for the invasion of Normandy, the landings that would eventually bring about the defeat of Nazi Germany. 
in spite of meticulous planning for all other aspects of the invasion, the one thing that General Eisenhower couldn't control was the weather. For advice on this, he looked to a team of meteorologists led by Group Captain J.M. Stagg from the Met Office. Conditions in early June were extremely unsettled, and the forecasters on both sides of the channel needed all the information they could get in order to predict when the invasion might occur. Stagg and his team relied on synoptic charts to give them what they needed. A little-known by-product of the work done at Bletchley Park to crack the German Enigma code was that the D-Day forecasters had access not only to observations from Allied observers and reconnaissance flights, but also to all the German metrology observations as well. Stagg and his team identified both the bad weather, which resulted in the postponement of the invasion on the 5th, and then correctly identified the weather window, which enabled it to go ahead on the 6th. Probably the only day during the month of June on which the operations could have been launched, President Truman said later. Post-war and the new radar technology was proving to be very useful in local area forecasting, particularly for detecting precipitation. In the US, the first radars to be used were 25 surplus aircraft sets, which were modified for meteorology use, and following the development of pressurised jet aircraft, the importance of forecasting upper-level winds became obvious. Jet streams were first detected by the Japanese metrologist Wasaburo Oshi, but his work was largely ignored since he chose to publish his findings in Esperanto. With more and more air traffic flying in the upper atmosphere, the locations and movement of jet streams, a term coined by the German metrologist Heinrich Seelkopf, became important to aviation forecasting since they have a major effect on flight times. We also now know that they have a significant effect on climate cycles, and many, such as El Nino and Alanina, have been named. The format of Aviation Met Report has been more or less unchanged since 1996, a format that replaced the older coding that had been around since the early 50s. The question that every new aviator asks, of course, is why does the weather have to be coded in the first place? There are, after all, 38 different codes for weather events in the standard World Meteorological Organization list, some of which are easy to remember, like RA for rain, but others that confuse. UP, UP, means unknown precipitation, and PY means spray. Codes can be added together, like RAB15E25, which means rain began at 15 minutes after the last hour and ended at 25 minutes after the last hour. Of course, being the United States, the US has a few additional ones, their list reaching 119, with entries such as Chino, C-H-I-N-O, meaning 
sky condition at secondary location not available. And WG forward slash SO meaning working group for surface observations. Although why on earth you'd need that in a forecast or actual defeats me. The reason for the complications of codes come down to the historical limitations of transmitting mediums. Originally Morse code and later teleprinters and the like, so brevity was essential. In 1996 this was still the excuse and I quote, The current SA code has been in place for over 40 years and the conversion to METAR is a follow-on which is not very different. As for having these products reported in a plain language format, this is not feasible. Whether that still applies in 2021, I have no idea. Remembering back to my training, a great deal of emphasis was then placed on interpreting surface observation charts, upon which was a plethora of station circles or more formally station models. Little change since 1941. These intricate and complicated sigils were invented to allow an abundance of observation data from each location to be compressed into a small space so that they could fit onto a weather map. Pilots were expected to decode these observations and from the data work out all that they needed from the chart, such as en route weather, winds, frontal locations, icing conditions and destination forecasts, etc. The basic station consisted of a circle with a flag sticking out. Segments of the circle were coloured in to represent the amount of cloud cover and the flag showed wind direction with tags indicating speed. Around this was a confusing array of dots and squiggles showing cloud type, pressure and tendency, temperature, dew point, present weather, visibility, past weather and the like. This was repeated for every observation on the map and overlaid were isobars allowing a measurement of the wind speed and direction. But since this was for the surface, a good knowledge of how the weather changed with height was essential. I hadn't seen one of those charts for many years, so perhaps they've entered into the world of Met history and good riddance. I happen to like my current weather forecast app on my phone that tells me, blah blah blah, it's only a matter of time until it rains. If you enjoyed this story, then perhaps you could help us out by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com.